I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're joined by Beirut-based journalist Ali Rizik, who will discuss the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah and the speech by its leader, Hassan Nasrallah, this past Friday in relation to the ongoing war in Gaza. With all that in mind, let's get right to it with Ali Rizik, who joins us again from Beirut. A note that this was recorded yesterday, November 5th, in the afternoon Eastern Time. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very interested to be speaking with. I believe he's currently in uh, Beirut right now. Uh, he wrote a piece for Responsible Statecraft that caught my eye entitled Why Hezbollah Doesn't Want a Full-Scale War Yet. Ali Ricic, welcome, welcome to Parallax Views, and my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Thank you. Thank you very much. No, all good. So for my listeners here in the U.S., uh, could you maybe just tackle first and address first uh, your understanding of Hezbollah and maybe what misperceptions some people in the U.S. have about Hezbollah? Well, first of all, um, Hezbollah prides itself on being what it calls a resistance faction, a basically a um, entity which was formed to counter Israeli occupation and Israeli aggression. And Hezbollah, time and again, has tried to underscore the fact that it is not 
contrary to what many people in the West describe it, an Iranian proxy. Uh, yes, Hezbollah does have uh, good ties with Iran. Hezbollah is supported with arms, uh, with all different kinds of financial support from Iran. But in the end, Hezbollah indeed does enjoy a significant level of independent decision-making. In fact, I would argue even further to say that in some particular regional issues, Hezbollah's uh, role or decision-making, uh, maybe it's a reference to Iran, meaning that if you look at the situation in Yemen, for example, or in Iraq, Hezbollah's leader, uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, probably enjoys more leverage in those countries than Iran does itself. And that uh, owes to many different factors. I think one of the main factors is that, in the end, Hezbollah is an Arab entity. Um, so it, it maybe has a better cultural understanding of Arab countries, of their Arab breathing in these places like Syria, Yemen, and Iraq. And I think Iran is the one which relies more on Hezbollah in those arenas. So I think that, you know, that uh, relationship between Iran and Hezbollah should be clarified. It's not simply the fact that Hezbollah is an Iranian proxy. I think that's too simple of a description. I think it's much more complex, as I just described. I also wanted to ask you, has anything uh, significantly changed about Hezbollah since, uh, you know, the the war they had with Israel or the skirmish they had with Israel in 2006? Yeah, there have been a number of changes, I think, uh, ever since that time. And most of them have enabled Hezbollah to grow stronger, stronger than it was. Um, a lot of the uh, talk is about how Hezbollah has amassed a much bigger missile arsenal, hundreds of thousands of rockets, including precision-guided missiles, which are capable of precisely hitting any Israeli target. Now, that is true, but I think there are other factors which must also be taken into consideration. Number one is the expertise Hezbollah has gained in offensive warfare due to its involvement in Syria. We all know how Hezbollah was involved. It um, was uh, invited or it took part on the side with the Syrian government forces against these other extremist groups like ISIS and the Nusra. It gained valuable expertise in offensive warfare in that arena. And it's also been able to cultivate a regional network, if you would like, as a result of it being part not just of the battlefield in Syria, but also in, in Iraq and Yemen. In both Iraq and in Yemen, and in Yemen it sent forces over there. Uh, in Iraq, it sent uh, soldiers and fighters to fight and also train the popular mobilization units in Iraq to fight against ISIS. In Yemen, it sent also trainers to help the Houthis against the Saudi-led coalition. And that's enabled Hezbollah to, to build a regional network of what I would call a, an ideological alliance, bearing in mind that in Iraq, its allies were Shia, in Yemen, the Houthis, who are from the Zaydi sect, which is also considered close to the Shia. So it's established itself, if you would like, as a Shia, quote-unquote, resistance leader in the region. So it enjoys influence with the Iraqis, with the Yemenis, both for ideological perspectives or for ideological reasons, and also 
because these particular groups in Iraq and Yemen believe that they owe Hezbollah something after it helped them out in these wars which I just described. So if you take a look at all of that, you have indeed a significant, significant developments which have taken place ever since 2006 until today. I think you answered the next question I, I had there, but I was going to ask you about uh, Hezbollah's relationship with other uh, Arab movements and Arab groups, but it, it sounds like uh, the answer to that is it's it's grown in terms of its regional influence. Uh, it has, as I said, it has grown with certain players. Now, at the same time, its intervention in Syria, it's been described by some, or it's actually been uh, cited by certain um parties, particularly those who have been anti-Hezbollah from the beginning, to accuse Hezbollah of being a, being a sectarian group. You know, a lot of people paint a picture in Syria that Hezbollah stood side by side with the Syrian government to fight against uh, Sunnis. Now, whether, whether or not that's true, it has affected, truth to be told, it has affected Hezbollah standing somewhat amongst the Sunni populations in the region. Now, that might be changing back to what it was now due to Hezbollah's solidarity with the Palestinians in Gaza and the operations being carried out. So I think, you know, it's, um, as I said, it's improved its standing with some very important regional players. With others, it's changed a bit. Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries have blacklisted Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. That was a significant development. But I think what's happening now with the situation in Gaza and Hezbollah's support there, I think that that um, uh, Sunni disapproval, if you would like, that might be in the process of beginning to change once again into a more positive direction. So I want to get more into the article you wrote for Responsible Statecraft. And I, I think since then, there's been a development. Uh, so on Friday, we had uh, the speech by Nasrallah. Uh, and I think it confirmed a lot of what you were saying in the article. Uh, I know a lot of people said that they felt that, or they were surprised that Nasrallah was very um, uh, sort of restrained in, in how he spoke. He's not looking for an all-out war at this point. Uh, could you give your analysis of that speech? Yeah, I'm not sure that restrained might be the correct word to describe it. I think the best way to describe the, the speech was um, a pragmatic realist speech. I, I think like. that's a better way to describe it, yes. Yeah. Um, so, look, he did say at the beginning of the speech, by the way, that you can't rule out the possibility that an all-out war could take place. Now, I think that when he said those words, he was he had in mind two audiences – um, number one was the Lebanese front here, the domestic front, because, you know, the Lebanese people, truth to be told, don't want war. And I think that this is not lost on Hezbollah. So he was trying somehow to reassure. He did say that war was a possibility, but the tone in which it was said uh, made it uh, gave the impression that it was an unlikely scenario. Now, the other audience I think he had in mind was the Americans, because uh, the Biden administration, ever since this crisis began, it appears that its policy or its approach rests on two main pillars. Number one, it's supporting Israel's goal or Israel's declared goal of annihilating Hamas. Number two, it was, doesn't want the conflict to expand. Now, I think when he was saying that it's always possible that the conflict on the Lebanon's southern border could erupt, 
that you can't rule that out. I think that was a message to the Americans saying that, look, nothing's guaranteed. You know, this could expand if uh, if the situation continues. And um, there was also a, another important message he gave to the Americans when he said, our goal is for Hamas. And I quote, he actually did name Hamas to achieve victory. And that's also, I believe, another message to the Americans that, you know, your support of Israel's goal of annihilating Hamas is a red line for us. And so you can't achieve these two goals simultaneously, annihilate Hamas and prevent a spillover, because those two in the end, those two goals are going to contradict. Could you elaborate more on, you described the speech as uh, sort of pragmatic and realist in its orientation. Could you delve into why you would categorize it that way? Well, if you noticed, for example, he said that... um, this is not the final battle, meaning this is not the battle which uh, which aims to destroy Israel. And he said, actually, he you did use the word for risk a himself. He said, we, we have to be... You said, yeah. uh, the, you, you cut out, at this is not the final battle. Could you repeat that? Yeah. So in the speech, um, Sayyid Nasrullah said that this is not the final battle, meaning this is not the battle which is going to lead to destruction of Israel which many of the people in the Muslim world sometimes talk about. He said, let's be realistic. This is not the phase we are in now. And I think that indeed does reflect a realist approach. And you have to bear in mind that you have American fleets, American Navy vessels in the region. And so he was dealing with that with a high level of pragmatism, saying that, you know, with all, he didn't actually say it, but I think what he had in mind was the fact that with Israel amassing all these troops on the border, with America mobilized militarily, etc., Israel has been weakened by this operation, which they called Operation Oxa Storm by Hamas, but it hasn't been weakened to the extent whereby it's actually on the verge of collapse, where it's vulnerable to collapsing. And there's also another important point I think we have to recognize is that had Hezbollah actually gone ahead and taken advantage of the situation to launch the final battle, I think that under these circumstances, what what that would have accomplished was it might have mobilized the Israeli home front even more and unified the Israelis. So I think it was a smart way to approach the current situation and to say, look, there's appropriate time for everything, for the necessary measures to be taken. Now maybe is not the time for that end battle, which will lead to the destruction, as they say, of Israel. If you could, uh, could you talk about some of the, I, I know you, you have some sources that remain anonymous in your article, but can you talk about what the sources in your article that you spoke to uh, had to say um, about Hezbollah? Well, look, um, uh, there was a lot of focus on the fact that uh, nobody wants war, including Hezbollah, and also on the fact that Hezbollah knows that the Lebanese people don't want war. And in the end, Hezbollah is a Lebanese entity, you know, regardless. Yes, it is the most powerful entity in Lebanon, but Hezbollah can't ignore the domestic front. And I think this is playing out right now. If it were only Hezbollah's agenda at play, without Lebanon's interests, I think you might have seen Hezbollah maybe intervening in a bit more escalatory manner. But one of the reasons why it's been 
somewhat restrained up until now is the fact that it has in mind um, the domestic front is not ready, particularly with the very difficult circumstances uh, Lebanon is witnessing. There was also a lot of focus on what I just alluded to in one of my previous answers uh, on disputing this notion that Hezbollah is a proxy for Iran. You know, this simplistic way of describing the relationship. And, you know, I was told by one of these sources that um, uh, senior Iranian officials often ask Hezbollah leadership opinion about certain leading figures, politicians, like politicians in Iraq, elsewhere. And so this just uh, speaks volumes, I think, to the regional clout which Hezbollah enjoys, particularly with those, you know, with the Shia groups and how it's become a very, very leading entity amongst the Shia players within this region. In terms of uh, Joe Biden and the White House approach to the current conflict, can you talk about what you refer to as Biden's dilemma when it comes to uh, achieving the U.S.'s aims in regards to this conflict and how Hezbollah's strategy is going to make achieving both of those goals uh, very difficult. Yep. Um, look, uh, President Biden has expressed his full support for the Israeli declared goal of annihilating Hamas. He's gone, he's thrown his full weight behind that goal. And at the same time, you know, they've the Americans, this is not like we saw in 2006, if you recall back then, uh, it was Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice who spoke about it's time for a new Middle East. You're not hearing that kind of rhetoric now from the American officials. What you are hearing is let's annihilate Hamas, but let, let's keep this situation under control, preventing a spillover, preventing expansion of conflict. I think that the Biden administration underestimated the extent of support which other players are going to offer Hamas. Now, part of that is ideological, you know, the fact that um, there is strong ideological ties, despite the fact that Hamas is a Sunni Muslim Brotherhood type organization, but they do share with Hezbollah this anti-Israeli uh, doctrine. Now, there's also a pragmatic side to that support, which is the fact that, you know, Hezbollah indeed does fear, and this is what I heard from the sources as well, it fears that if Hamas is destroyed, then the Israeli government is going to set its sights on Hezbollah itself. Uh, so that, uh, with that in mind, Hezbollah thinks that this is a fight of life or death. It's true that Hamas is the one which is on the receiving end right now. But according to Hezbollah's own evaluation, if the Israeli government succeeds, then it's going to set its sights towards Hezbollah itself, especially Hezbollah being the bigger enemy, and it might seize the opportunity if it gets this momentum and defeats Hamas, it might use this momentum to go ahead and defeat Hezbollah. And Hezbollah also knows that the Americans are very much um, under the sway of Israeli politicians in, uh, in the Middle East, like American uh, foreign policy or American Middle East policy is very much subject to the Israeli interests. That's what we've gotten used to in this region. And so if America for, throws its full support behind Israel against Hamas, what's to stop it from doing a similar thing towards Hezbollah? And that's also, I think, a reason why you saw uh, Sayyid Nasrallah devote a very significant portion of his speech towards warning the Americans 
of you know of any kind of attack or any more escalatory involvement. In regards to that fear that Hezbollah could be next, uh, it could be the next target if Hamas is destroyed. Uh, what are the indicators for that being um, an evaluation that may well be correct? Do, do does Hezbollah have any indicators that that could be the possible scenario if Hamas is destroyed? Well, look, I refer to this in the article. If you recall, it was, wasn't was long before the war started when Gallant, the Israeli defense minister, was advocating, according to American press reports, was advocating for a preemptive strike against Hezbollah. And he was overruled by Netanyahu. The Americans, of course, warned or made it clear to Netanyahu that they didn't want this thing to spread beyond Hamas. So Gallant in that in that particular case was overruled, but it does give you an idea of the intentions of this Israeli government. Now, this is an analogy I make myself. It's not something I heard, but um, I think you could compare this government to the Bush administration in September 11. What happened after September 11 was that you had a neoconservative administration, which was subject to this very, very heavy attack on the, back then in 2001, and it quickly, you know, went ahead and waged wars throughout the region, beginning with Afghanistan, Iraq, and there was a lot, of, a lot of hatred and ideology, I think, feeding those policies, the demonization of these groups like Saddam Hussein, etc. And by the way, I'm no fan of Saddam Hussein, but just to give you an, an idea, now in the Israeli government, you have something similar. Uh, they were subject to a very, very, uh, uh, very difficult, hard attack. And you have a kind of messianic or ideological right-wing government over there. So it's very possible, if you make that analogy, that this government, this Israeli government, could tread on the same path as the Bush administration and lash out and not just keep its reaction isolated to the to the party which took which implemented the attack, but to expand it under maybe some false pretexts that there were other parties also involved, like Hezbollah, like Iran, and they hence deserve to be punished for what happened. If you could, I, I think I have listeners here in the U.S. that are mistakenly thinking that Hezbollah isn't already in some way. Uh, involved in this current conflict. And I, I do think Hezbollah, and, and Nasrallah even says this in the uh, speech, Hezbollah is involved in the sense of, you know, they are trading, you know, rockets and, and um, you know, going after the Israeli military in the north along that border. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and the calculus uh, that Hezbollah has in regards to their involvement in this conflict so far? Uh, look, uh, uh, in the beginning of the answer to that question, just let me update you on what's happened today. Today, there was an Israeli drone strike which led to the death of five civilians on the Lebanese southern border. Now, this is being described as a game changer because if you um, listen to that speech by Sayyid Nasrallah, he said that uh, killing of civilians will be met by the killing of civilians on the other side. Now, just after this attack on that civilian car today, Hezbollah launched a cross-border missile attack into the Galili region, leading to the death of one settler. 
So that the, it appears to be snowballing more and more, and Hezbollah's involvement is only going to increase, judging from the indications. Now, in answering your question more broadly, uh, Hezbollah was involved ever since the second day, October the 8th. It made it clear that, you know, we are not going to be standing aside and watching. We're very much involved in this conflict. Uh, Hezbollah's leader also said that they were informed just moments after that this operation was carried out by Hamas. And the uh, Hezbollah's lost about approximately 50 fighters ever since the uh, the clashes began up until today. Israel's lost also tens of uh, soldiers. I'm not sure of the exact number. And that just gives you ide an idea of how much Hezbollah is involved and how much Israel is amassing on that border region. And I was going to say that I, I think the calculus for Hezbollah right now is, you know, uh, this is sort of like a war of attrition, as one of your sources told you. And it's really about, uh, on their end, it's about diverting military resources, you know, to, to weaken the operations that Israel is having in Gaza, correct? Yeah, look, uh, this is one of the cases where Hezbollah has really showed a very, very um, high level of pragmatism in its approach. A lot of people uh, try and focus on the ideological aspect of Hezbollah and how Hezbollah is driven by ideology. There is ideology involved, but I think that Hezbollah is also a very, very pragmatic uh, player. What we're seeing right now, the very calculated responses, I mean, that speaks volumes to that. And again, the domestic front in Lebanon is an important factor. Even Hezbollah's previous decisions, um, if you recall the decision to intervene in Syria, um, that was not out of ideology or just supporting the Syrian government. That was also for self-preservation, because you had some extremist Sunni groups over there who were really going opposing a threat. And if they had come to power or toppled the Syrian government, that would be a huge, huge disaster for Hezbollah. I mean, imagine having a Sunni extremist government or a Sunni extremist group in power on one side of your border and having another Israeli enemy. And maybe now you can talk about an Israeli extremist uh, group there on the other side. So these, I think these all give you an idea that Hezbollah operates just like any other national entity. It wants to secure its borders from any threat. And that's what's driving Hezbollah's approach, I think, whether it be in this particular situation or before. Before we start closing out, is there anything else we can add in terms of not just Hezbollah now, but also um, in the past? You know, with we mentioned uh, the war in 2006. I think people often forget that I would view that war as having been uh, a pretty successful one for Hezbollah. I think they staved off Israel in a lot of ways. Um, could you speak to the the sort of uh, both the successes and if there are any, uh, the, uh, I guess, maybe feelings of Hezbollah at times in terms of its uh, military operations? Well, look, I think if, if you want to talk about one failure for Hezbollah in July 2006, it didn't anticipate the magnitude of the Israeli response. And Hezbollah's leadership also admitted to that. Um, Israel did succeed in, you know, dealing huge, a lot of bombardment, uh, severe bombardment of the southern Beirut. I was here, I remember that. But um, in the end, uh, 
you know, bombing uh, buildings or killing civilians, that doesn't win you wars, does it? And if you look at uh, what happened ever since July 2006 up until now, Hezbollah is only growing stronger. And I, that's, I think, that that's the way you measure success. Uh, what was Israel able to achieve in terms of diminishing Hezbollah's capabilities in July 2006? It wasn't able to, to achieve much except maybe the severe destruction inflicted on southern Beirut, which maybe might have deterred Hezbollah to, to some extent. But that deterrence goes two ways, doesn't it? Because on the other hand, you know, Israel also fears that it'll its cities anywhere could be bombed in case a new war were to erupt, given Hezbollah's very, very vast improvements in both accuracy and in quantity of its weapons or its uh, rocket arsenal. So, you know, let, just I'll give you a clear example. The Israelis were the one who established the Vinograd Commission to investigate the failures of July 2006 war. So when countries or when any entity or whatever you want to call it establish commissions to investigate, that does tell you that there were failings, significant failures, which were made on the part of the Israeli side. If you could, uh, what do you think the main uh, things people should be looking out for right now in terms of how this conflict uh, could escalate further and potentially turn into a regional war. What's your assessment of the possibility of this turning into a broader regional conflict? I personally believe that um, that's unlikely to have a broader regional conflict. Uh, there were two, just too many sides who are against it. The Again, uh, if you compare the situation between now and 2006, the mood back then, especially on the part of the Americans, the Bush administration, was very much more vocal in support of war. There was much more pro-war rhetoric, as I recall. That's not the situation you see now. And I think that that's due to several reasons. First and foremost, the fact that the Biden administration um, is preoccupied. It has bigger fish to fry, if you would like. Uh, the situation with Russia, the situation with China. I mean, the last thing it needs is to have another larger conflict to, to erupt here in the Middle East. And up until now, I believe that Netanyahu is, generally speaking, um, um, not you know confronting the Americans. He's generally sticking to what the Americans are telling him to do in a, in a broad sense. Uh, that could change. I'm not sure that's always possible. Uh, but, uh, but up until now, I think that uh, it's not changing, that the Americans do enjoy significant sway over Netanyahu as things stand. If that continues, I believe that uh, not only will it not escalate, I also believe that the Israelis have a shrinking window of time to finish this situation. Could you elaborate on that last point a bit? Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, the popular opinion, I, I myself was surprised by the public reaction and the backlash in the Western countries, especially in the United States, you know, those huge protests which went out. And I think, you know, that uh, it's beginning to hurt Biden's chances of being reelected. Uh, remember that his election against Trump during the last presidential elections was a close one. Michigan is considered to be a swing state. You have a lot of Arab Americans over there. And so it's beginning to hurt. And I was reading an article, I think, in The Hill the other day, 
about this particular topic. You have a significant progressive group, emerging group in the Democratic Party, you know, and the Democratic Party is more and more becoming the party, I think, of the um, of the minorities, like Black Americans, etc., people who you would believe to be more prone to supporting the Palestinians. So I think he's swimming against the tide of the Democrat of the Democratic Party. And I also read the stances made by Dick Durbin, which were very interesting. Uh, he also expressed support for a ceasefire, despite the fact that uh, he was supported by APAC back in the early 80s. And this speaks volumes, I think, to the uh, developments taking place in the Democratic Party and the we not the weakness, but um, the fact that APAC no, maybe no longer enjoys that influence it used to have. So there are many factors, I think, even electoral factors, which in the end should push Biden to reconsider his approach. But you know more than me about that, I'm sure. Is there anything I've missed in the course of this conversation uh, that you think people should be particularly um, taking note of in regards to the conflict or just uh, uh, Hezbollah? Um, there's just one point I would like to emphasize that um, I think that the Americans uh, adopting Israeli policy in the region has, beca- has become too counterproductive for the Americans themselves. Um, the United States could enjoy excellent ties with all peoples of the region. Um, in the end, Hezbollah was, a, if you recall, during the Obama, during the Obama administration, sorry, that there was a kind of uh, indirect partnership back then against uh, Sunni extremist terrorist group, uh, Al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorist groups. Uh, the Israelis have always objected to that and have always wanted to steer the Americans in the direction of focusing against Iran, against Hezbollah, despite the fact that it's the Al-Qaeda affiliates who were the ones who committed September 11, who bombed in Tanzania and Kenya. So I think it's very important to, to keep that that in mind, that uh, America and Hezbollah and similar ideas, the groups with that ideology, uh, they could even cooperate possibly, against common enemies. Um, But that requires, of course, for the United States not to listen to the Israeli, not to be steered by Israeli preferences. I think think that's the bigger challenge. One thing I know that my listeners will be annoyed if I don't ask, because I I have listeners that I think are new um, to talking about this region. You mentioned that Hezbollah is uh, a Shia Muslim party, uh, but it's sometimes worked with Sunnis. Could you explain? I, I think a lot of people think, oh, how can Sunni and, and Shia Muslims uh, end up working together and then being so opposed? Can you explain the, I guess, the dynamic with regards to religion? Yeah, look, um, I think you have to categorize the Sunnis. You have what I would call, um, I wouldn't call them Sunni extremists. Maybe that's an unjust way to put it. I would call them the Salafi Jihadi or Wahhabi extremists. Uh, These are what you call the Takfiris. They are considered to be um, from the Sunni sect. But this particular category of Sunnis, the more extreme part, um, they believe anyone else to be non-believers, to be what we call in Muslim a kafir, who is deserving of death, of being slaughtered. Even their fellow Sunnis themselves, they regard them in this manner. Um, this applies to Al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Nusra Front, for example. 
Um, those are the ones which groups like Hezbollah don't have good ties and they've clashed together. But these also, they you know, they fought other Sunnis themselves. Now, if you look at the another category like Hamas, which is more of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, they don't have this mindset whereby those who don't have my ideology are considered to be non-believers and hence it's it's legitimate to kill them. That ideology isn't part of the Muslim Brotherhood approach or part of Hamas's approach. And so you see these groups coordinating with Hezbollah. And as I said in one of my previous answers, um, there is one ideology which draws groups like Hamas and Hezbollah together, which is the anti-Israeli or anti-Zionist ideology. And uh, there were disagreements between Hezbollah and Hamas during the events in Syria, that has to be said. Uh, Hamas did support for a certain time some of the anti-Assad groups over there. But um, this is what I also heard from sources as well. Uh, the page has been turned. And once again, Hezbollah and Hamas view themselves on the same side. So that sectarian factor which you just referred to, that applies to a certain category of Sunnis, and namely to Al-Qaeda and ISIS, not to groups like Hamas. In closing, I promise this will be the last question. I've kept you a few minutes over as it is, uh, but what do you see the possible scenarios being for uh, how this current conflict pans out? Uh, where do you see it at it personally? And then what, what are some of the scenarios that we can expect? Well, I was reading a statement today by the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying that there won't be a ceasefire until all hostages are released. Now, what we were hearing before that was there won't be a ceasefire until Hamas is destroyed. And, right, that's uh, a change in the rhetoric. Yeah, There is. I mean, that's a significant change. That's a change in the goals. And it's interesting that this change came after Blinken's visit. So I think that, you know, this speaks to what I was saying earlier, that I think that the Biden administration now is in a corner. It has no choice but to push the Israelis into beginning to close it out, to end this war. And I, for now, I don't see that the Israelis are going to resist these pressures. Well, I want to thank you again, Alenichik, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? You've written for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, I believe you have written for a number of other publications as well. Uh, is What's the best way to keep up with the writing you're doing? Yeah. Um, look, I post all my writings on Facebook. Unfortunately, I'm not very active on X. I intend to be more active on X or on Twitter. But uh, for the time being, you can find my work on Facebook. I write for Statecraft and also for Almonitor. So you can always follow them to see. Thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ali Rizik and that you'll follow his work at publications like Responsible Statecraft. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views.
the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.